Lazarus uh, is a wonderful and glorious story in the Bible. It's, a, it's packed with details, uh, some of which have to do with Lazarus and his death and resurrection and others, uh, the, the story that's swirling around it. This is getting close to Jesus' um, Passion Week and the crucifixion and that sort of thing. And I realized, I looked back to see the last time I had preached on this, and I found that I had done six sermons on the Lazarus chapter, one, one Lent, a number of years ago. So, yeah, I'm going to squeeze all those into one sermon. <laughs> um, now, what I want to focus on, and this hopefully was cued by the opening Revelation passage and song and the hymn that we just sang, is that this, this is a powerful miracle story as as. Christy alluded to, but there is an even bigger and an even better and a more glorious story overarching this. And as significant as it is that Lazarus was sick, that he died, that his sisters grieved, that the town grieved, that Jesus himself grieved, and that he was resurrected from death, Jesus throughout is is pointing his disciples and even Mary and Martha and us towards that bigger story. And that's what I want to latch on to this morning. And if, if I could capture it all into one verse, it would be verse 4 from this chapter where Jesus says, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified in it. And so I want to challenge you to, to tune your ear and keep your eye focused on that glory, what that glory might be in this story, even as we work through some of the details. Glory, I mean, we use it in common language, um, maybe with athletes or celebrities um, who you know, are achieving a certain level of fame or glory. Uh, when, you, when you move towards biblical language about it, particularly with God, it, it gets much bigger than that, although there's an aspect to uh, kind of the the fame and reputation of God's name, but it, it also describes things that we might say are glorious, like a, a beautiful sunrise or a, an oceanscape. And the reason those are glorious, I believe, as a Christian, are because they are the handiwork of God. Part of God's glorious nature is displayed in what he has made, as well as what he has done. And so I often will look out on a, a beautiful scene and just say, oh, that's glorious, and if, if everything's kind of tuned up right, I think, thank you, God, for that glorious thing. C.S. Lewis talked about a weight to God's glory. It's, it's not something that human beings can really fully bear. But because God is God, he, he bears and carries the, the full sense and weight of what it is to be glorious. And what Jesus is pointing at today is something's about to happen, friends, that's going to it's going to be amazing, yes, miraculous, yes. But all of the miracles are signs of God's power. They aren't just a, a supernatural thing in and of themselves. Now this person who could not walk can walk. This person who could not see can see. They are signs in the sense that any sign points towards to something else. They all pointed to the power behind those miracles, and that is God. They were to say, yes, this blind man can now see, but God, the source of this miracle, is the one that opens spiritual eyes, 
all over the world, in all times and places, God is the one who gives real sight, um, real freedom, real joy. And so this, this is what I want us to, to keep our eye on as we, as we step through the different parts of the story is what is glorious going on here. Sometimes it's, it's hidden. We're waiting for it. We can't see it yet. And then other times it's in full view. So I want to I list six details of this story that all bear in some way to seeing God's glory. And not just in this story, but they do for us as well. And I'm going to try to connect those dots where I can. The first one has to do with timing. And it's in verse 6 where we see this. Where Jesus, I mean, it's just so in your face in the story. Jesus received this news and it, uh, John takes a few minutes to tell you just how close Lazarus and his sisters were. They were true friends of Jesus that he would visit and spend time with. It wasn't necessarily part of his mission and ministry. These were dear people to him. John names all that, the disciples, and he get the news. And then he says, and so we're, we're not going to go for a while. He tells the disciples, we're going to wait here. And they were far away. Um, it was a couple days' journey. He says they waited two more days, and what he said to them is that this sickness won't end in death. It will end in God's glory. But I wanted to lift out that, that theme of waiting and timing. You and me, or at least me, I can speak for me, I often pray a prayer, and my, my expectation is, well, God is going to answer that right away. I pray about it tonight, and I'm hoping God's going to answer it tomorrow, if not sooner. I never have prayed, God, will you answer this prayer in a couple of years, unless I'm praying for something like my children's future spouses. But usually my prayers are, I want an answer, right? We're used to putting our card in the machine and getting money out. That's not how it works. Often, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote Melvin because he was right on the money. Um, I think he's the one that originated this. He says, God always answers prayer. Sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's a no. And sometimes, and I'll say a lot of times, it's wait. Wait on God's timing. God who is wise and good and powerful sometimes has us wait. And that seems to be what was going on in Jesus' response here. I mean, he knew what was going to happen. He knew the situation, and he chose to wait. And I would say the reason for that has to do with seeing God's glory. So keep your eye on the glory. In verse 16, we find out a little bit more about why they are so far away. When the disciple, when he, he does talk about going to, uh, back to Bethany, which is right next to Jerusalem, the disciples start getting antsy. And they're like, wait, we, we're not going back there, are we? I mean, we'd be going back to die. And if you read a little bit around this chapter, if you back up a chapter to John 10, you realize that the thing that has just happened has been Jesus was... Um, teaching in or near Jerusalem and was pressed to say who he was. And he, he identified himself publicly as the son of God. And the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, called him out on that for blasphemy. And, and a crowd tried to stone him, to kill him for that blasphemy. And so he and the disciples withdrew several days away out into the country because they were threatening to kill him over what he had been teaching. And so when he says... Okay, now it's time to go back and see Lazarus, go back to Bethany. The disciples are like, okay, you can go. We don't want to die. If we go back anywhere near Jerusalem, they're looking for us. 
right? So there's this element of risk, and yet Jesus was, having waited, he's now willing to face the risk again because what's floating in the background, it's God's glory. We're going to see God's glory shown in what's about to happen, and that's worth the risk. Risk shouldn't keep us from encountering or experiencing God. And I think about not us particularly, but churches everywhere. It's so easy to kind of keep our, our following of Jesus inside the walls and during the certain hours of a week, you know, Sunday school, church, maybe we have a, a Bible study or a prayer group. But it doesn't start to get risky, does it, until we take our faith out into the workplace, the marketplace, the neighborhood, the world. That's where things start to get more heated, where the risk shows up. And I feel fairly confident in saying, well, obviously, I believe God shows up here. I announced it at the beginning of the service. But God doesn't limit showing up to here. In fact, God's purpose and mission is being played out in the world, and he's called us out into the world. So there is a certain level of risk where we, we have to go to encounter what God is doing and to experience God's presence. So I think you see that element in this story where he says, we're going to face risk and you're going to see the glory of God. And I take that as a a lesson for us as well. Then there's a big middle section of the story that I'm really going to compress a lot, and that is Jesus arrives in Bethany, and he has an encounter with Martha, one of the sisters, and then with Mary, the other sister. And that's a a bunch of verses, um, again, could do one sermon on each of those. But what I want to lift out of that is the element of faith and grief and, and belief in facing what we face in life, challenges, struggle, loss, even death, and how those intersect with God, with Jesus, for God's glory. So first, Jesus comes to town and Martha comes out to meet him. What's going to be interesting is both Martha and Mary, their first words to Jesus are the same, although their their emotional reaction is much different. Both women say to him, Lord, if only you had been here, our brother would not have died. They both recognized Jesus could do miracles. He could heal sick people. He could have done something about this if he had only been here. I don't get the sense that either sister was blaming Jesus or angry. It was more just a declaration If only you had been here, something would have been different. But that's where things diverge a little bit. Martha goes on to say, I believe you can do anything, even now, she says. I mean, it hints at, you you maybe could raise him from the dead. She doesn't name that out loud. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And that, that seeming leap of faith she made kind of comes back down to earth. And she says, oh, I know, in the end... uh, he will be raised uh, with, with the others. And Jesus kind of moves on from there. But I'm, I think of her as someone who is dealing with loss and grief um, in her head. I, I know Martha had feelings, uh, but she, she processed with Jesus. She brought her, her thinking, her mind to the situation and brought it to the Lord, to Jesus. said, I know you could have done something if you'd been here. I believe you. I trust you. You have all power. You can do whatever you want. And I have hope in the resurrection. Um, and that's a good thing to do, to bring our, our minds to the Lord. Mary was inside with the, mourn, the public mourners, which is a cultural thing when people died. 
um, friends and family and sometimes even paid mourners showed up to mourn, to wail and cry. But she came out to meet Jesus. She says the same thing, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But then she is at Jesus' feet, herself wailing and crying. And again, it doesn't seem like she's blaming him. She's just bringing her way of processing things, her sorrow and her grief over her brother's death to the Lord and literally laying it at his feet. Also good. I'm not saying, I'm not here to say Mary or Martha did it better uh, than the other. Rather that they represent for us the, the breadth of how people are wired, right? Some of us, um, I've seen this uh, in families when someone dies, and there's multiple siblings. There's often one who has the to-do list. Who has, there are things you have to do at a funeral and work through those. Others that are um, just kind of a puddle on the sofa. And I always am, am clear to say to the family, everyone processes grief differently, and there's not a right or a wrong. And thank goodness we have both going on here because all this needs to happen. There are things that need to happen when someone dies, and there's also grief that needs to be processed, and we all do that differently. What I, what I love in this story is that both of these sisters, and their very different personalities, brought it to Jesus to say, I'm glad you're here now. And they, they trusted him, and they were his friend. Again, where's the glory in this? You know, there's a piece of us, we've we probably heard this story before. We know it has a, a happy ending, right? Lazarus comes out from the, the grave. But I would say, I've seen God's glory even in sickness and even at death. Um, when families latch on to the hope that we have in Christ, the one that, that Martha named, that one day um, in the, our, our, our loved one is with God in resurrection, even if not resurrected today. There's great hope in that and great glory. And I think both of these sisters were opening themselves to see that, not knowing what was going to happen. They came and brought what they had, their grief to the Lord. A fourth thing, what follows from that is, um, well, I mean, there's a lot that I love about this story. But I, I called this emotional Jesus. It is well known to Bible, Bible memory experts everywhere as uh, the, the shortest verse in scripture, Jesus wept, um, which I, I learned back in third grade along with several others who wanted to get the prize. Um, but it's actually such a rich two words. I, for the longest time, for the longest time, I read this as, well, Mary's there crying at his feet. He is moved with compassion, with sympathy, and he cries with her. Well, fair enough. Um, I mean, I think that is a part of what's going on. Jesus had emotions. We're, it's so um, hard for us to, to talk about that, and there's, there's not uh, a lot of verses that talk about his emotions. There's the turning over tables in the, the temple. Uh, but this is one of the, the key spots where we read about Jesus' emotions. But I, I dug into that word a little bit, and it's actually a different word than what Mary and the others were doing. So prior to Jesus' arrival, Mary and the, the mourners were mourning. The, their word for crying is like wailing out loud. I mean, you know, keening and, and crying out and I mean, almost a, a ritualistic grief, right? Get it out. Get all the emotions out. Um, and even Mary, when she came and, and 
fell at his feet, she was still wailing. That's not what Jesus did when he wept. His tears were not that, that kind of public ritual of grief. It was what you might imagine with crying, just a sadness and a sorrow. This was his friend who had died and his, his other friend who was grieving. It wasn't for show, um, though some people noticed it. But what's even more interesting is on both sides of Jesus wept was um, this, this phrase that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. Um, and I'll look that up. I mentioned this like eight years ago, but I'm trusting none of you remember this. <laughs> when it says he was deeply moved in spirit, and I'm not going to try to recreate this, it is it, it's what is used to describe when a horse is uh, snorts because it's agitated. And it literally, it's like it came up from inside of him. I don't know if you've ever, if you ever see me cry, this is awful what it looks like, because I'm trying to hold it back and then finally it like gets out. It's, it's, it's physical and loud and it, I mean, it sounds like a snort, right? This, this emotion just kind of pops out and there's an agitation bit to it. And that's what it says happened to Jesus, not once, but twice. When he saw all the mourners and the, the grieving, it says he, he, um, he, he was upset and, and snorted in, in response. And then Jesus wept. And then they went down to the tomb, and he again was deeply moved in spirit. And here's what I think was going on there. I don't think he was angry at Mary. I mean, he loved Mary. He, he did weep tears with her and for the situation. I think that that tinge of angry and that burst of emotion had to do with death seeming to have won that day and him being so close, I mean, days away from his own crucifixion and victory over death, right? It was so close to what he had come for and yet it looked like to Mary and the mourners and the others this is the hopelessness of the human condition, right? We live and we die and that's it. And I think he, as the, you know, often he's, he's portrayed on the cross as, as beaten and beaten down because he, he was whipped. We just read about this in the confirmation class. But there's another whole historical description of what happened on the cross that calls him Christus Victor, the victorious Christ, where he chose, and he did choose that path, because that's where he confronted sin and death and was victorious over that. I think he knew that was coming and just how close they were and that, that courage and that boldness and that offense at death just burst out of him in that moment, even as he was also, I think, sympathizing with his friend. All of that points to, to me at the humanity of Jesus. He's not a God with a robot suit on, come to do magical miraculous things. He is also fully human. That's part of his story and that he feels deeply. He loves deeply. These were his friends and death, even knowing he's, he's going to be victorious over it, death impacted him um, just as it uh, does us. Uh, and he, he was responding to that. Fifth, they go on down to the, the tomb and he, he says, let's remove the stone. And Martha, there's, there's no Bibly holy way to cover over this. She says, Lord, it's going to stink. Right? Lord, by this time, there'll be a stench. She's been dead for four days. Very practical, Martha was. But then verse 40, 
is where he connects back to that verse 4 that we saw at the beginning about keep your eyes on the glory of God. He says to Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? He didn't say, you believed, you're going to see your brother again. I mean, she's going to, but he said, the glory of God. If you believe, you'll see the glory of God. And so they, they're going to proceed to, to roll the, the stone back. But I want to lift that up as another piece in this story, um, that, that belief uh, opens our eyes to see God at work, to see God's glory. So we've talked about timing and risk, faith and grief, um, the humanity of Jesus, which has to do with him, not with us, but then belief to open our eyes. And then the last number six factor I want to name um, has to do with his prayer. So they rolled the stone back, and before he calls for Lazarus to come out, Jesus prays this uh, prayer, which is just fascinating. I did a whole sermon on this as well. They remove the stone, and then Jesus starts to pray. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's already worked it out with God. He says, you have heard me. You've already heard me. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He's already prayed to God for the power, or however that works, to raise Lazarus. What he's doing now, and he's going to say this out loud, was he wants the people to hear him pray. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So they had been weeping publicly to kind of hold out the reality of death and grieve over it. He now prays publicly. And there's another place, remember, where he teaches to pray not publicly, pray privately. But this is so that people will not miss the power of God at work. So he prays out loud so that they can hear God is answering this prayer. God is doing this work. God's going to show his glory. Then, also in a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come forth. I remember speculating at great, why so loud? Why yell? Is it Lazarus has to you know, hear through the wrappings or back in the back of the cave? No, I think it's a public declaration or demonstration of God's power. He wants all the people there to hear God connect to this. What's going to happen? He calls Lazarus out and he comes out still wrapped up. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And verse 40 uh, five. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. They saw the glory of God. This prayer was a preview of the glory. I want to um, end with a word on the glory of God. There's a trajectory to this story. It's so easy to read it, and it's a wonderful, amazing, glorious story. A friend was sick. Jesus went to visit him. He um, did the, you know, maybe the biggest miracle he had done to date. The man lived. What a great self-contained story. But Jesus has set that whole amazing story inside the bigger story of God, God's glory come to us. I think besides doing this miracle because he loved his friend. I think the greater purpose was he wanted, you know, if you look at his ministry, he started kind of small and would often tell people, don't, go, don't say anything about this. I've healed you. 
you know, let's move on. As he gets closer and closer to the end, to the cross, he becomes more and more public. And this is the most public of all. He, he prays it out loud. He heals a man who's then known to be dead four days, um, who goes around appearing places. And it says that's when the people who are against Jesus uh, actively started to plot his death is in the wake of, of Lazarus. I think Jesus is doing this to, to open the eyes of anyone who will see to, to what was going to happen, that he was going to die. There would be a wait. There was risk in being associated with Jesus. You know, at, at a point, the disciples went and hid. Uh, there was grief. There, all these elements were then even more so with his death, and yet the great glory of God in the resurrection on Easter was coming. I think this was the great, I called this preview of coming attractions. This was the great, final, clearest preview of what people would take in and, and hopefully understand and believe. It was so that they could believe. And that's where the story ends up. Many, not all, many saw these events and they believed in God. Some went and reported what had happened to the Pharisees. So this trajectory um, doesn't end with Lazarus' resurrection, but with Easter and even beyond that, I want to end by reading again the, the call to worship. I say it, the trajectory goes to Easter, but even beyond, because that passage from resurrection, that's the, that's the true end of the story. After Jesus is risen to new life and us with him, we still have more to live, more to do, more to play out until we're in God's presence at the end. But this, this revelation passage... I think that's as close as we can get in human words to describing this picture of the glory of God. Um, so let me just read that to you and just listen to it with all this story in, in your mind. And all, that, all the pieces that opened people's eyes and your, and your and my eyes to God's glory, the waiting, the risk, the faith, the grief, the humanity of Jesus, all of it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne, Jesus, who sits on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. These words are faithful and true. Amen and amen. Amen.